We've just returned from a wonderful Feast of Tabernacles and last great day. God richly blessed us around the world where his people were celebrating this feast, celebrating the coming kingdom of God and the plan of God going on beyond that. And now we have returned home. And if you're like me, you're kind of bracing yourself to get back into the the daily life that we have. We've been to that wonderful place at the feast where we we step out of the world for a while. We get off (laughs) the ride and we can really concentrate on things that are important. And now here we are back again, back at school, back at work, back in the world of this present evil age. I imagine you're like me, you very much appreciate the break that we get when we go to God's feast, especially the Feast of Tabernacles. We get to step out of this world where increasingly it's going a way that is in opposition to God's way of life, and now we're back, and we're back to swimming against the stream. We're striving to do what's right in a world that not only doesn't respect God's way, but actively opposes it in many different aspects. So I thought it would be good for us today to look at the question of why do we have to come back home? Why can't we just live like the Feast of Tabernacles all year round? I know one family in Hawaii, when they mentioned to their children it was time to go home, the little boy broke out crying. He didn't want to go home. He wanted to stay there. And we can all identify with that. Why do we have to go back into this mean old world when we're not of the world? We're in it, but not of it. When we look at the Bible, though, we see that that's often, in fact, it's always been the way for God's people. They've always had to live in a world that was going a different direction. They had to swim against the stream. They had to buck the current. Righteous Abel was murdered by his brother because he wanted to follow God's way. In the seventh generation from Adam, righteous Enoch had to be transferred from one place in the world to another to escape people that sought to kill him because... He was living God's way of life. Noah was jeered for decades while he was building the ark that was going to save humanity. People mocked him for what he was doing and for his way of life, which was God's way. We know the examples of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who faced incredible opposition for simply trying to live righteous lives. David was nearly murdered by a king who was jealous of his favor with God because he was a righteous man. And the greatest, the greatest example of all of them, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was himself the victim of lying plotters who plotted and arranged his death because he was following God's will. And we know that most of the apostles uh, ended up martyred for, uh, again, simply living a righteous way of life. And Jesus told his disciples, he didn't hide any of this from them. He said, it's not going to be easy. You're going to face opposition in order to follow your Father's will. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, in the Sermon on the Mount, a passage we know well, probably by heart, Jesus said in Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. There aren't very many people on the road we're on. It's hard to find. In fact, you can't find that road even unless God opens your mind to it. He has to call you to it. But then that road is sometimes difficult. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. As we remind ourselves, I'm not going to tell you something you don't know today, but we just need to remind ourselves why we have to come back and go through uh, this life. Why is it so important that we come back to our homes and that we continue... um, 
in this, the Christian struggle. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is, verse 5, manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time Paul wrote that, the Thessalonian Christians were enduring tribulation. They were enduring trials and difficulties, unpleasantness, pain, however we want to put it, and persecutions, which is active opposition from other people because they were trying to live a Christian life. And Paul specifically said that that was manifest evidence of God's judgment that they were worthy of the kingdom of God. Because God allowed them to go through that, that was evidence that he considered them worthy to receive the kingdom of God. They were worthy of the kingdom. Persecution tribulation, difficulties, obstacles, those are all evidence of God's choice in our lives. A best-selling author named Terry Goodkind said, if the road is easy, you're likely going the wrong way. And oh, how true that is of Christians. If the road is easy, you're likely going the wrong way. Notice also in that passage in 2 Thessalonians that they were promised rest At the time of their turn to Jesus Christ, they were going to enter into a very special rest to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Right now, we don't have a lot of spiritual rest. We do on the Sabbath, but when we're in the world, it's work. It's struggle to do the right thing. But we are promised rest. They will have rest. We will have rest from trials and tribulations in that future time. But it isn't yet. That time is not yet. One of the lessons we take away from the Feast of Tabernacles and the last great day is that in a future time, all humanity will have spiritual rest. We're promised rest from the labors and weariness of this life. We and all humanity will accept what God offers. Right now, we're going through the troubles and the turbulence and the vicissitudes of this life. But we are promised in that future time, rest. So the message that I have for you today, springing from our coming home from the feast in the last great day, is that we are going to have rest. We're promised perfect rest in the future, but it is not yet. We still have work to do. I know some of the trouble, some of the pain, some of the persecution that some of you have experienced and are experiencing in your life. Uh, I don't know. I know only a small part of it. There's much more than what I can know, of course. Some of that is simply a part of life because there is pain in human life. That's just a part of the experience. But some of it is due to your faithfulness to God, to our faithfulness to God. And that is a very valuable thing in God's eyes. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 11, please. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. 
Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, heavily loaded down with burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, rest for your lives. And when we look at the prophecies of the Bible, that rest is going to be eternal. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we all know that it doesn't seem that way all the time. Sometimes the yoke and the burden seems pretty heavy. But when we look at it in the context of all eternity, we only have to bear that yoke and that burden in the physical sense for a few decades. And then we have eternal rest. Ultimately, there will be complete, unreserved rest. But that comes only after a period of labor and being heavily laden, struggle and trials. And we understand that our adversary, Satan, tries to make those burdens as onerous as he can, as difficult as he can. In fact, it even mentions in Daniel chapter 7 that one of Satan's tactics is to try to wear us out. He just wants to tire us out so much that we finally give up. Let's be reminded of that in Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 7. In verse 25, the context here, we believe, our understanding of it is the persecution against the church by a pagan church, actually, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, during the the dark ages of history. But this also, there's a type and an antitype here, and I believe this prophecy applies also to things that are going to happen at the time of the end, just before the return of Jesus Christ. It says, he shall speak pompous words, speaking of this false uh, prophet, false religious leader. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And if you look that up in the Old King James, or even just literally, the literal translation of those words in Aramaic is wear out, wear down, just tire them out. Satan wants to wear us out, make us so tired that we just give up. And one important key to resisting that pressure, one important key to persevering and to standing under that kind of pressure is to remember that we have a certain promise of peace and rest to come. True, permanent, spiritual rest. So as I said, let's be reminded of why we have to suffer now. Why do we have to go through all the things we go through in this life? Why do we have to come back from the feast and engage once again in the spiritual combat that we have? Why do we have to come home to the struggles of our daily lives? Part of the answer, I believe, is found in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I don't claim, I can't claim, I don't think any of us really can, to understand exactly everything that this verse means, but even what we can understand is really vital for us. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. Talking about Jesus' experience as a human being. It says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That seems odd at first glance. Jesus learned obedience from the things that he suffered. What does that mean? Does it mean he wasn't obedient before? Well, of course it doesn't mean that. Uh, Does it mean he didn't know how to obey his father before? Well, no, it can't mean that either. He never sinned. He, He always obeyed his father. Then Somehow he suffered and he learned something he didn't know before. I I doubt if that is the case as well. He always knew what his father wanted. He always fulfilled the will of his father. He always obeyed his father. So how should we understand this passage? 
that he learned by the things that he suffered. He learned obedience. Well, the only way I can understand this thus far as I've wrestled with this is that somehow there was some new element. There was some deepening of his understanding about what obedience was. And I don't, as I said, I don't claim to know exactly what that was, but there's some new dimension there that the Son of God himself experienced because he was willing to go through suffering. There was a new depth or power in his character, perhaps. Uh, There was some sort of change that came from facing adversity and from suffering to fulfill the will of God. And I think that means, brethren, an interesting thought to consider. There's always more going on in the work of God than what we can see. There are always things going on in the background that we don't perceive. And we get glimpses of that in the Bible sometimes, too, where a prophet will say, open his eyes because he can't see everything that's going on. And suddenly there's this new dimension that someone wasn't aware of. And that's going on in our lives all the time. There are things behind the scenes going on in the perfection and development of our character that we don't understand at the time. If this was true of Jesus Christ, that some, something happened because he was willing to suffer because he was uh, obeying his Father, if that was true for the Son of God, how much more is that true of us? How much more important is that for us? We know that we learn many things when we face opposition, when we swim against the tide, when we suffer and face opposition. We learn things like patience and perseverance. We learn determination and empathy. We learn courage under fire. We learn a deeper love of God and a deeper love of other people. And I believe that even now, every day of our lives, we're learning things that we probably don't fully comprehend yet, We're growing in character attributes that we cannot yet now identify because we're willing to bite the bullet and follow the will of God. The Stoic philosopher Seneca said, the bravest sight in the world is to see a great man struggling against adversity. And that's what we're called to do. To this we are called, to struggle against adversity. In June of 2017, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, John Roberts, gave the commencement address at the Cardigan Mountain School, which was a private middle school that his son was attending at the time. I found his statements to be strikingly refreshing after what we often hear in commencement uh, addresses. And he speaks to our subject today, the one that we're looking at at this moment. Here's a portion of his address from June 3, 2017. He said, Now, the commencement speakers will typically also wish you good luck and extend good wishes to you. I will not do that, and I'll tell you why. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you'll be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time, so that you'll be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponents will gloat over your failure. It's a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you understand the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain 
to learn compassion. He said, whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit them, benefit from them or not will depend on your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. That's a big part of what we're about, brethren, to see the message in our misfortunes, our trials, our adversities. Some lessons can only be learned by experience. Some qualities can only fully be developed by challenging circumstances. And some attributes can only be developed, can only develop themselves by suffering. And the Bible is pretty clear about these things, as we've already seen. But let's turn to Lamentation now. Lamentation chapter 3, not a book that we read too often, probably. But there's something interesting in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 25. Of course, this is Jeremiah lamenting on the overthrow and destruction of his nation. He had a lot to lament, and he does so in this passage. But he was understanding the message in his adversity, the message in the suffering of his people. And this is part of what he relays here in chapter 3, verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Salvation will come, but it doesn't come immediately. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God had laid it on him. It's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. It's good to have some difficulties as a young person. And many times young people who've had to grapple with health issues or other kinds of of problems, they become deeper people more quickly. They understand they have a better, a deeper, a fuller understanding of life. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him, as he has to all of us for this window of time during our lives. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast out, cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. He does not afflict willingly. It's not that God wants us to suffer. He takes no pleasure in the difficulties or the frustrations that we have, but he knows they're necessary for our growth. And so he's willing to let that happen to us for a time. He's willing to let that happen to us for a time. It's good to learn about hardship and struggle when we're young. That's one of the reasons we have this life, is to learn about hardship and struggle. It's not good to have life too easy, although isn't that what we all dream of? (laughs) If we had our choice, that's what we would pick. We'd pick the easy life, where we could be wealthy and healthy and young always, and that's what we dream of. And one day that will come true for us in in a, in a, a sense beyond what we can imagine right now. But to get there, we have to go through what we have now. Charles de Gaulle, the general and president of France, a great leader, said, A man of character finds a special attractiveness in difficulty, since it is only by coming to grips with difficulty that he can realize his potentials. That's true. Not always pleasant, but true. A man of character finds a special attractiveness in difficulty, since it's only by coming to grips with difficulty that he can realize his potentials. And that's true of us as well. We can only realize fully our potential, our incredible human potential, by going through difficulties. 
Some potentials are only realized under pressure, under opposition. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a researcher and writer on the topic of death and dying, among other things, said this, The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep, loving concern. And she ends her quote with, Beautiful people do not just happen. Beautiful people have to be made. They have to grow and develop. And that comes to these kinds of difficulties that she's describing. The time will finally come when that will all be a thing of the past. The time's going to come. We have it on God's word that we will have rest, perfect rest. But it is not yet. Jeremiah chapter 6, please. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. Jeremiah 6.16 Stand in the way and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. That's the story of human history. That's the story of the history of Israel and Judah. The story of humanity. Human beings insist on learning the hard way. God says, this is the way. Walk in it. It'll be better for you. No, no, we want to do our own thing. We think this is better. We know better. And we get human history with all of its suffering and all of its misery. Turning over to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 7. Hebrews 12, verse 7. If you endure chastening, punishment, correction, however we want to put that, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. We're not having some things to overcome, some difficulties to deal with. We're not really sons. That's why we all have them. We are truly children of God. And he's looking after our education. He's chastening us. He's guiding us. He's correcting us. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers in his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. We can all agree with that. Nevertheless, afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. That peace is coming. It's going to last forever. It's a promise from God, but it isn't yet. Now we're going through the period of chastening. The peaceable fruit of righteousness comes to those by chastening, by pain. We will have peace, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, righteousness, in the time beyond the great white throne judgment, that wonderful future that goes on without end, we will have peace. But now, we're still learning. We must first learn. Then we'll have rest and peace. But of course, that time is not yet. Now is the time when we follow the example of Jesus Christ. In fact, 
the Bible calls following Jesus Christ, <clears throat> it compares it to a spiritual fellowship. Now, fellowship is not usually a word we use in that particular sense today. Uh, when we talk about fellowship, it usually means conversations before or after church. But fellowship actually has another deeper meaning than that. One of the most popular film series of recent years from the Lord of the Rings trilogy was the first book or the first movie was the, the Fellowship of the Ring. A fellowship, in that sense, is a group of partners or colleagues who are engaged in the same activity. So in the movie, of course, you know, or in the book, if you read it, they're trying to destroy an evil ring, bring about the downfall of a malevolent forger of that ring. Um, but we're involved, we're a part of a fellowship that is much greater and much more meaningful than some imaginary thing in a book. And we read about that in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, starting in verse 7. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. The things that were really important to me before my calling are not important to me anymore. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We are part of the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And that's the most important fellowship or group or club or uh, association that there ever has been. We are like him. We're part of that fellowship. Not a f fellowship of some fantasy ring, although that's a thrilling story. But we're a part of a fellowship that is real and much more important the fellowship of his sufferings, living like he did, facing similar though much less dire opposition and trials. That's the most important fellowship there ever will be in human history, the fellowship of his suffering. And we can be very thankful that God has counted us worthy to become a member of that fellowship. The French playwright Moliere said, the greater the obstacle, the more glory in overcoming it. The greater the obstacle, the more glory in overcoming it. And the brilliant Scottish polymath Thomas Carlyle said, Adversity is the diamond dust heaven polishes its jewels with. Adversity is the diamond dust heaven polishes its jewels with. And that's true, as it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Lots of passages speak to that. Romans 8, 17 well, in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if, if, that biggest little small word in English, if, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified together. If we stay in that fellowship, the fellowship of his suffering. We're heading to the new heavens and the new earth, and the road is narrow, and the way is hard. But we're in the right way. On April 23, 1910, former President Theodore Roosevelt gave what would become one of his most widely quoted speeches. 
The former president, who had left office in 1909, had spent a year hunting in East Africa before embarking on a tour of Northern Africa and Europe. In 1910, attending this event, uh, he gave speeches all over the world as he traveled. He gave speeches in Cairo, in Berlin, in Naples, in Oxford. And then he stopped in Paris, and on April 23rd at 3 p.m. in the ancient University of the Sorbonne, before a crowd that included, according to the Edmund Morris biography, ministers in court dress, army and navy uniform, uh, officers rather in full uniform, 900 students, and an audience of 2,000 paying ticket holders. Roosevelt delivered a speech called Citizenship in the Republic, which among some would, become, would come to be known as his speech about the man in the arena. So in addition to touching on his own family history, he spoke about war, human rights, property rights, the responsibilities of citizenship, even France's falling birth rate. Roosevelt then railed against cynics who looked down on men who were trying to make the world a better place. The poorest way to face life, he said, is to face it with a sneer. And how many people are sneering today? He went on, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities, all these are marks not of superiority but of weakness. And then he delivered an inspirational and impassioned message that drew huge applause, and people still read it and contemplate it today. He said, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort, there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually does strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. The man in the arena. That's you, and that's me. We're the people in the arena trying to do something important and great. And there are people around us who sneer sometimes. The world sneers. Satan sneers, but we're the ones in the arena, and we're doing something very worthy. Sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail, but always with God's help, we get up again and we continue forward. And even when we fail, the Bible says all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Writer Sherilyn Kenyon said, sometimes things have to go wrong in order to go right. Sometimes things have to go wrong in order to go right. And in a sense, isn't that one way to kind of describe God's plan? He lets things go wrong for a while so that they can ultimately go right, so the character can be developed in his children. So he let Satan have a relatively free hand for a while, and he allows mischief in the world and evil in the world for a time so that ultimately good can come of it. Sometimes things have to go wrong in order to go right. Michel de Montaigne, the famous French writer, said, There are triumphant losses more important than victories. 
And that's true in our lives, too, because we learn a lot from our failures. And we grow in character as a result of getting up and brushing ourselves off and starting again and getting back to it. Through this spiritual training, through adversity and trial that we have to go through, God stands beside us. He allows us to be tried, but not too much, never too much. Mr. Kylo quoted 1 Corinthians 10, that God always makes a way of escape, never tempted beyond what we can bear. And that means that God intervenes to prevent something if it would be bad for us. Something was going to be bad for us, like it says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for, the, for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. If the trial were too much for us or if some experience was going to be bad for us in the long run, our Father would step in and stop it. He wouldn't allow it to happen. God only allows things to happen to us if they're going to be for our good in the long run. Even the bitterest parts of life are going to turn to our good. Otherwise, he would deflect them. He would say, no, stop. Satan, you don't cross that line, just like you did with Job. You can go this far, but no farther. God does things like that in our lives as well. I wonder how many injuries we have escaped because our father saw that that wouldn't work out to our good, and he stepped in and said, no, stop that, deflect that, change that. I suspect, I can't prove it, but I suspect the list is long, and I hope, I believe, One day God will show us that list. Yeah, I intervened here in your life. and No, you didn't see it, but I did. And that's why the situation went this way instead of that way. That's what these verses imply to us. God says, no, Satan, you will go there and no farther with my child. Leonardo da Vinci said, obstacles cannot crush me. Every obstacle yields to stern resolve. He who is fixed to a star does not change his mind. Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci gave the credit to his own stern resolve. And probably for a lot of things that was true. Da Vinci was an amazing man. In addition to being a a scientist, an inventor, a creator, and an artist, he was also the strongest man in his town in Italy. He could bend a horseshoe straight with his two hands. He was really an exceptional character. Uh, You and I are not that exceptional. We're only exceptional because the Spirit of God has been granted to us. And through the indwelling of that Spirit of God, we are fixed to a star much more important than the one da Vinci was imagining. We're fixed to Jesus Christ, who is called a star in the Bible. Revelation twenty-two sixteen, the bright and morning star. To that star, we are fixed. That is our salvation. That will be our rest. Because finally, we and all humanity will have rest and peace forever. After the great white throne judgment, after the third resurrection, after the ending of evil and death, Then comes the wonderful eternity pictured in Revelation chapter 21. And I dare say, I imagine you've heard this during the feast at least once, but let's read it again. I never tire of reading this passage. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea, sea representing turbulence, unsettled. And I, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. There will be perfect 
rest. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. That, brethren, is the perfect rest toward which we're traveling now. Perfect, eternal rest. Not inactivity. We're going to be amazingly active, as God is active. My Father works and I work, said Jesus. But we'll be at spiritual rest, at peace. Rest and peace in the family of God. Rest and peace in our hearts. Rest and peace in our minds. Struggle and pain and tribulation will only be a distant memory. And will be forever strong, forever healthy, forever in the power of the full strength of life. It will be like we're young forever, although we will no doubt at some point be considered ancients of days ourselves in the future. Back to Chief Justice Roberts and his address in 2017. He ended his address by quoting the words of a song written by Bob Dylan. It's called Forever Young. He wrote it as a lullaby for his son. These are the words that Chief Justice Roberts quoted from this song, from this lullaby. May God bless you and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung. And may you stay forever young. May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous, stand upright, and be strong. And may you be forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of changes shift. May your heart always be joyful. May your song always be sung. And may you stay forever young. I thought that was very applicable to us because almost everything in that song is going to come true for us in the future, for all eternity. Because God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So brethren, as we move away now from this cycle of feasts this year, as we come away from the Feast of Tabernacles, let's keep that pristine vision clear and vibrant through another year until we once again gather at the Feast of Tabernacles in the last great day to be reminded of those promises. But now, now is the time again to pick up our spiritual tools, to take up our cross. Let's check the fit on our whole armor of God. Strap it on tight. Because now is the time for us to return to the arena and the work of our lives. Because though it is not yet, rest, perfect rest, is coming. It's sure and it's certain. So let's stay the course.